We never know what the Lord's going to do. But when He does, we're glad in it, right? Let's turn together to 1 Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to, again, talk about the church as the buttress and pillar of truth. I'm going to talk about that again today, and I'm going to talk about that again next week. Paul writes in Paul writes in chapter 3 verse 14, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so to you so that if I delay you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. With everything that we have experienced as a community, as a culture, as a nation, as a people, as a church, individual families and households, there are a lot of things that can readily uptopple us, turn us over, mess us up, make us anxious, frustrate us. And in the midst of that, we try to find some solidarity. We try to find something that can be a foundation, something to stand upon. Now, the Sunday school reality of this is that the Bible teaches that Jesus Christ is the rock, not our obedience. The Bible teaches that Jesus is the foundation. Not our faith. The Bible teaches that God alone is sovereign and rules over all these things. Not our decisions and will and good choices that make a difference. But that God has purposed all things according to the counsel of His will, to the praise of His glory, for the good of His people. And sometimes we experience things and we ask, how is this for my good? What is really good about any of these things? Well, beloved, the good news is, is that we don't get the foreknowledge. We don't get the peak into tomorrow. We have the promise of forever. And the promise of eternity is grander than the peak into tomorrow. The promise of eternity is beyond anything and any season and any opportunity that we may have to even know the future. Because at the end of it all, there is no king but Christ and no kingdom but his people. So, beloved, as we learn and as we hear from this pulpit, our purposes do not change. Our message does not mix. And we are here today because we're instructed by the word of God to be together. We're instructed by the word of God to be together in fellowship so that we might have intimacy with the scripture, that it might teach us how to be a people who live together under the gospel, who take care of one another, who pray for each other. To truly be a family involved in intimacy. Because the world has many opportunities. We can always find a friend outside the faith. We can always enjoy camaraderie in the context of things that we enjoy. We can always, we can always have a crowd in certain areas of our lives. But Father, being the church is not about, the Father teaches us that being the church is not about being the crowd, but being a Siblings being children with one father. That's what I was trying to say. 
being a family with one Father, a family with one Lord, a family that comes together not because we're scared not to, it's because we must, we need to. We need to see that God has a purpose and a plan for us and that through the local assembly of the saints is the only place where God has promised most of these things will take place. Now, of course, it's not salvific. Being in the church is not something that, that you know, if you don't attend congregational you know, services, then you can't get into heaven. You can't, you can't say that, even though the world sometimes believes that. Many people have come through our doors and gathered with us on the Lord's Day throughout the years because they were seeking a way to appease the wrath of God. A seeking a way to appease their conscience and say, you know what, I feel like because I'm here today, I'm doing something in the right direction. For my eternal salvation. Now it is in the right direction according to the obedience to Christ. But it is not going to help us in the judgment seat. It is not going to help us say, well, Lord, I was involved in church and I served my community and I did this and I taught Sunday school and all these other things. And I sang in the choir and all this other stuff. These things are not vital to the Christian life. But what is vital to the Christian life is the gospel of free and sovereign grace. The word, the sufficiency and the authority of the word of God and learning how from this pulpit and together as a people to live despite all of our uniquenesses, despite all of our differences, despite all of our loves and affections that may not be congruent with one another for the sake of Christ in his name. So the church exists as the buttress of the truth. It holds up and shines the truth out there. Now, I'm going to talk about some things today that are going to be extremely controversial. And when I say that which is true according to the text of Scripture, a lot of times people hear me saying something about someone else. Well, I can tell you this. I've done that before. I've done that several times in the 23 years of ministry. But I have not done that in this pulpit. I've not preached according to my irritation toward a particular individual. That doesn't mean I haven't been upset and you've seen some frustration come through because I love the Lord and I love most of all the Lord's people. But when we preach the scripture, we are teaching the church. And when we see Paul deal with things and the antithesis of the truth that he teaches with, or even when he polemically approaches a particular subject, what that means is that he attacks a particular point of view for the sake of truth. We aren't to major in these errors. We're not to major in these differences. We're not to major and become experts in these in these uh, intricate um, uh, distinctions, if you will. We are to major in the gospel. Or to major in being the people who are in the gospel. And so when I say some things today, some of us might go, Ooh, that's, I know who he's talking about. No, you don't. I'm just opining in the commonality of our culture. And more importantly, probably in things that I myself have actually been exposed to through the years. How does the church uphold the truth? Last week we talked about that. We know the gospel. We understand the word of God. And so today I want to say about three or four different ways that the church should uphold the truth. First and foremost, we uphold the truth in the doctrine of Christ. The doctrines of Christ, the gospel. Because, beloved, we are a people of truth. We're a people of the word of God. We're a people who are supposed to have true gospel understanding. And that doesn't mean that we're not going to be persuaded irritated or somewhat deceived at times. Look at the Galatians. 
The people of Galatia received the gospel. The people of Thessalonica received the gospel in power and in truth by the Spirit of God. They were converted by the Spirit, not by the propositions of Scripture. They were converted not by Paul, but by God Himself who brought them to life to understand that Christ alone satisfied His wrath and gifted them the credit of His own righteousness. You see, that's the point of what it means to be the good report. The good news of salvation is God has saved the people in the death of Jesus. It is finished and it is never going to have to have anything else done except Jesus dying on the cross. The sins are paid for. The sins are paid for. When God grants repentance, He gifts faith. And faith rests upon that proclamation. Rests upon that promise. And that is a divine work that God imposes upon the mind and the heart, soul, whatever, gut, internal ideologies of the believer, of the believing one. And so we as the church need to understand that we are here to stand and proclaim the truth. And there's a manner in which we do it. We are to give glory to God in the proclamation of the truth. The true gospel teaching about God, about who he is, about what salvation is. All these things that we see through the historical confessions and the uh, statements of faith. And every church in the world has some iteration of something. These people that say, well, I don't have a statement of faith. Yes, you do. Tell me what you believe about who God is. Whatever comes out of your mouth is the statement of your faith about who God is or what you believe. Tell me about what you believe sin is. Whatever comes out of your mouth is your statement of faith. Tell me what you believe about salvation. Whatever comes out of your mouth is your statement of faith. So our statement of faith is our ongoing, forever believing and learning from the Bible and then expressly internalizing and being taught by God the Spirit the things of God. The church is the buttress of the things of God. And that is not to say that that Rome had it right. They didn't. It is not to teach that the church is some institutionalized, overseeing entity that tells all the Christians what they do believe. No, the Word of God, God tells us what to believe. And God has prescribed the, the, the reality of how He will teach His people and through what manner. That is why you find me being a little heavy-handed on these theological studies. On this historical theology. On these cultural ideologies. On all these other things that we always believed, we thought we knew, or we've been taught, or some superpower preacher over here telling the whole world what should be known when the Bible tells us. So the scripture teaches that the elders can teach the church and instruct the church, but the church is not to be open-minded and stupid about it. Test it. And when it's wrong, there's a means through which we get correction, even for the elders of the church. There's a means through which God has provided gentle, patient, loving correction. We are to, as the church, tell the truth about God and salvation. We are to tell the truth about humanity. We are to tell the truth about sin. We are to stand and display amongst ourselves the truth about living and correction. Living according to the scripture and correcting according to the scripture. Now, there's two types of, and we call that church discipline, right? There's two types of church discipline. Discipline means what? Practice. Loving practice. Discipline is about taking things and continuing in a way that produces a result. 
Discipline is about I'm not going to eat four pieces of cake. I'm going to eat one. Discipline is about I'm going to go to bed before 3 a.m. because I have to get up at 6. Discipline, you know, and we have it sometimes and sometimes we don't. When it comes to the church, we have formative discipline. We have the teaching of the scripture and the oversight of the elders and the service of the deacons for the sake of the church so that we are growing. We are being edified. What does the word edify mean? It means to be built up, to be made strong, to secure, to establish. And so we are to be built up through formative discipline. This is what the Bible says about the truth. This is what the Bible says about this theological thing. This is what the Bible says about our attitude. This is what the Bible says about our lifestyle. This is what the Bible says. But we're not to do that in judgment. We're not to do that in oversight in a way that shame, shame, shame. This is not what the Bible has called us to. And then there's the corrective discipline. There's the corrective discipline to say, all right, Brother Bob, you're not doing this correctly. And it's infiltrating the relationships of the church. You're handling this wrong. Simmer down now. Simmer down now. Like, there's nothing wrong with a child asking for a toy in the supermarket. There's nothing wrong for a child wanting ice cream at the end of a hot Saturday afternoon when you drive by Dairy Queen. Hey, can I have an ice cream? No, not today, son. Okay. Versus kicking the back of your seat while you're driving and screaming, ice cream, ice cream, you know. No, you're not going to act like that. We're not going to permit that type of behavior. We're not going to let the child pitch a fit in the floor without consequence. See, consequence has a negative connotation, but there are consequences, the outcome or the action or the thing that, you know, the sum of all decisions and choices. Everything has a consequence, positive or negative. Sometimes corrective discipline feels negative, but the consequence of corrective discipline is always positive, even when the member of the fellowship is expelled either by abandonment or unrepentant sin. That's not negative. It's positive. Why? Because we don't permit tantrums and selfishness. Why? Because we can't focus on doing and being what God has called us to be. We don't have joy and peace. We can't pray correctly because all we're doing is looking at this kid kicking the back of his daddy's head and wondering why nothing's being done. Nobody's paying attention to the truth when everybody's pitching fits. When anybody's pitching fits. So we buttress the truth. We buttress the truth of true true affection according to the biblical prescription. This is review from last week. We, we buttress, we stand up and display the truth in the church. You notice I haven't talked about anything in the world. I'll get there. The church has no business teaching the world to be disciplined as the church. That's not okay. We'll get there. But we should stand on the absolute sufficiency and authority, both and, of the Bible. Let me say that again. We should stand on the absolute sufficiency and authority of the Bible. In other words, everything we need that matters in life according to our faith and our life together as a people, is written in the pages of Scripture. That's it. Not only is it written there in context to teach us, but it's also written there in context to train us. To train us. So we buttress the truth in that way. The church also upholds the truth because we are stewards of this truth. See, we aren't the origins of truth, are we? 
We don't get to decide what's true and what's not true. We don't get to say, okay, well, this is a little bit more relative. We also don't get to emphatically and dogmatically burden people with things that aren't necessarily prescribed. For example, the way someone ought to, what type of clothing they should wear. Or what type of food they should eat. Or what type of entertainment they should enjoy. Now, there are obvious things. There are obvious things that are grossly sinful in the eyes of God. And there are also obvious liberties that some of us can handle in our conscience while others cannot. There are fellow pastor friends of mine that if they hung around some of the knuckleheads that ring my doorbell uh, and heard the language that they use, they would probably melt like the Wicked Witch of the West. I'm melting. You see, because they're just not engaged with that type of person. But no harm, no foul. It's okay. But don't condemn someone just because their conscience doesn't, isn't destroyed when a worldly person acts worldly. It's okay. The point is to grow. The point is to receive correction. Well, we're stewards of the truth. Jesus is the truth. The scripture teaches us that Jesus is the word. The scripture teaches us that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the image of God. Jesus is the point of creation. The Bible teaches us that we are his body. We are his bride. We are the sheep of Christ. We display Jesus Christ unto glory. And we share in his life and his death and his future hope. We uphold, we do not change or install historical or cultural truth. We hold to the written word alone, and that's enough. Now see, when you hear me say that, a lot of people would say, well, every church says they hold to the word. What makes y'all any different? What makes you, Tippins, any different than the guy down the street? Who calls himself this, or the guy down the street who holds the exact same translation of the Bible up and says, We hold the full counsel of the Word of God and bumps it. What's different? Well, I guess the only difference is that if we're not being taught by God according to the Scripture in its context, then we're not teaching the truth of Scripture. But yet, everybody claims the same thing, right? Everybody says, Well, you know, by golly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter, I can't remember which one it is. You know, My women are going to do that. That's what the Bible commands. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. No, this is commandments. We're going to do this, we're going to do that. But what's weird about that is that there are a lot of good people who claim to be following the Scripture in those Things that are debatable in their context, but yet they would ignore the very doctrine concerning Christ surrounding them. They would ignore the very command of God to be gentle and patient and kind and loving and not pass judgment. They would rather themselves be a Pharisee than Jesus. They would rather be like the spiritual elites who are perfect in their doctrine, by the grace of God. You know, don't take credit. That humble brag, by the way. That's still arrogance. I'm not wrong by the grace of God. He showed me the truth by the grace of God. That's arrogance. It's not okay. 
Jesus uses that example, that very example, the Pharisee. Oh, thank you, God, for changing my life. Thank you, God, for teaching me the truth. Thank you, God, I'm not like that tax collector. Oh, God, you alone have caused me to pray. You alone have caused me to tithe. You alone have caused me to dress like this. You alone have done all these things. Oh, Lord, have mercy. Thank you so much, God, that I'm not like everybody else. And the publican goes, God, have mercy. Propitiate for me. Satisfy your wrath. That's what he says. And what happens? Jesus says, that man was justified. The other man, condemned. So from the word, we uphold the truth. We display the truth. We secure the truth. We defend the truth. There's a simplicity in the reading of Scripture. And there's a danger with pretexts and verses and all these other things that are so easily misunderstood and pulled out of context. I can tell you anything if I have just a sentence. I can make it say anything. I can make you believe anything if you don't have the context from which it comes. So many times we hear people say, well, that's what the Bible says. No, that's what that sentence says. But what the Bible is saying is relative to where it's saying it. It's just like the very nature of 1 Timothy. Why has Timothy written all of this? I mean, why has Paul written all of this? To teach Timothy, an elder, how the church ought to live and be in order. Under what occasion? False teaching running rampant. The instruction was, let's do this. Bad teaching. And bad behavior running rampant. So what's the context of this writing? Is when everything's going to heck in a handbasket and everybody's acting like idiots. Just do these things. Just remember these things. Just believe these things. Be patient this way. And charge people. Hey, stop like stop saying that. Hey, stop doing that. For the sake of Christ. You know, when you charge a brother or sister in Christ to stop doing something for the sake of Christ and they ignore it, they are not in Christ. Now, that's a harsh statement. And that statement might get me hung, but I'm going to tell you, the Bible tells us to treat them as if they're not. So as far as we are concerned about someone's ability to understand and apprehend and live out the faith, for someone to say, I'm not listening to you for the sake of Christ. Is to blaspheme Christ. Now, have we all done it? Yes. But we don't get very far, do we? We do it in our pride and our anger. We stomp our feet. Rah! But these people who double down and then become righteous in their disobedience and rebellion based on other qualifications that aren't found in the Bible. We justify our sin and it is not okay. Just like we justify our sin against the state. We speak. We don't wear a seatbelt. We do this. We do that. We do that. Oh, that's okay. God is not a God of wiggle room. He's a God of righteousness. And the gospel is that all His righteousness in wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ for the sake of His people. And their sins are paid for. So therefore, look at what we have received. We should be and we will be Taught by God according to his word. So whether it be a heretic, a false teacher, a cult leader, a cat, 
a mouse, a clock, or a digital voice from a computer. When the word of God is spoken, we heed it. And in doing so, we are the buttress of the truth. If we do not heed the truth in all things, we do not uphold the truth in anything. Because the church is the picture of Christ. What truths? Well, I could come, let's say, I could probably deal with 30 or 40, 50 different things. But for the sake of where I want to go for next week, talking about church membership and then receiving two families into the membership of the church next week. I want to talk about the church in several different things. We uphold and display the wisdom of God. I read that text last week in Ephesians chapter 3 that the church displays the manifold wisdom of God to the realms and the heavenly places and, and things of that nature. We display it. And only in the church, beloved, listen to this, only in the church is the wisdom of God seen in living, in life, learning, loving one another, all the other L's that could come out of my mind, longing for the things that are not of this world. Only in the church. It's not in the world. It's only in the church. So if we have hard, strong, formulated, foundational, theological doctrines, and we do, and we should, it is not because we have created them or consolidated them or systematized them to a way that now we know what God is. It's because God has given that to us in His Word. We are the stewards of this truth. So in the same way the wisdom of God is displayed in that knowledge, the wisdom of God is displayed in the humility of life that comes with that knowledge. It's only when the church is together, only when the church worships according to prescription, only when the church loves and ministers according not to the culture, not to the what the, not the world says. That church over there, that successful church. Beloved, be careful what you think is successful in the context of ministry. If butts in the seat were a success, and that's what we needed, oh dude, that's easy. Wouldn't even have to compromise the truth. We'd change the emphasis. And you know what we would change the emphasis on? We could let the truth be secondary. And not love each other because of truth. We just love each other because of good times and fellowship. We call it fellowship. See how I sound like I'm talking about somebody? I'm not. The church has no commission. And here's the problem we see sometimes. Well, the bunch of the truth, we're going to change the world. The church is not called to change the world. God has established the world exactly the way it is. God has sovereignly decreed the world will be exactly where it is. Every wicked thing, every aggravating thing, every political thing, every bad economic thing, every... Everything. And the church has not been commissioned to change the world, nor has it been commissioned to change the viewpoints of the world, because the only way one is granted repentance is if they're gifted faith to believe in Christ and the sufficiency of Him as the Word. So the church has no commission. There's no prescription in the New Testament. Not one prescription in the New Testament. Nowhere where the church is taught by the apostles or Jesus Himself to go out into the world and to change things. 
Nowhere does the Bible teach that a government is considered Christ's people. Nowhere does it teach that a nation is considered Christ's people. Nation of Israel! Man, that's a whole other problem. We'll get to that next week. People have changed the meta-narrative of the Bible for political points. And I think we've all bought into it. The Bible, the New Testament, was written to the church, not to the world. It was written not for the world to be called to biblical obedience, to biblical discipline. This is not the way it is. It's not okay. The church is not a social agency. Even though, as citizens and as Christians who are citizens, we have a social responsibility. To who? To the hurting, to the weak, to the sick, to the poor, to the naked, to the hungry, as we're able, as unto Christ. But not for big change. See, what we do often is we put our eggs, we put our hope eggs, we put our intimacy eggs, we put our spiritual eggs, we put our investment eggs in missions, and, and we put our, our, our time and our hope in a superpower. A charismatic leader who's saying what needs to be said, who's doing what needs to be done, and who is firing people up to follow after Him and do likewise. Beloved, that's not the way of Christ. It's not the way of the kingdom of heaven. It's the way of the world and the prince of the power of the air who is at work in the sons of disobedience who forsake the truth and who forsake the assembly and who do not want anything except for change because there is a self-glory in that no matter how much a person desperately sees does not see that self-glory. There is self-glory in worldly ministry. Church is not a social agency to change the governing of nations. The church is not a social agency to change morality of a nation. We have no right to bring discipline upon our neighbor if they are not in Christ. Whether it be formative or corrective, like we talked about a moment ago. We have no right We have no right to insist on biblical obedience and adherence except with each other. I want you to think about it for a second. How many pulpits would be silenced today if God stopped all that foolishness? Most evangelical pulpits. Most Protestant pulpits. Most Catholic pulpits. Most cult pulpits. Most world religion pulpits. Most sovereign grace pulpits. And the humble brag, by the grace of God, not this one. You know what? He'll shut it down too. We are not special. We are not some elitists amongst a small herd scattered across this great cosmos. We are objects of mercy, beloved of God. And by the mercy of God alone have we learned the truth. Let us also live in the truth according to the nature and the character and the witness of Christ Himself. According to the Bible, as it's simply taught, that even a three-year-old who can read or listen can understand the principles therein and abide by them. We are 
upholding the truth by being the wisdom of God. We are upholding the truth by being the picture of glory. We will share as the church the display of Christ and His perfection, who is our head. We will be established in splendor and beauty and perfection with the Lord and be presented forever as a new creation, as a new people. We are the picture of glory. We are a people of redemption. You see, what does what what Paul say there? He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed by the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. We share in all of that. We are recipients of all of that. Christ came to this earth to save sinners, His people, the elect of God. He came to this earth, put on flesh, like a created thing, and subjected Himself to the, to the weakness of flesh, the God of glory, come into man to walk among us and tabernacle with us, to declare Himself the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of every one of His sheep throughout the world. Every nation, every tongue, and every tribe. We are the people of redemption. We are those who are a royal priesthood, as we hear in the Scripture. We are those who are a new nation. Here's one of my favorites. We are those who are not of this world. But beloved, how much time do we spend in the world in thought? And in affection. That's so much. Just getting our yards done. It's like, where is the Lord? <laughs> you know? And we're not going to let it grow. It would be poor stewardship. You planted the grass. You need to take care of it. And you get a ticket if you don't, if you live in town. So, I mean, you know, we're stuck. But I can't tell you how many times throughout the years that I'm out there going weed eating and growing. And I enjoy it. And I'm thinking, where's the eternal value in this? Let me praise God for its beauty. And if it dies, it dies. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Oh, well. To God be the glory. So let's don't sit here and act like anybody on this planet in the faith is always looking and living constantly in the Spirit, constantly with the mindset of Christ. It's not going to happen. That's why monasteries exist, because they think, I can't do it in the world. Let me hide in a cave by myself. And when I feel like I don't want to be here, I'll whip myself with chains so that I can focus on the pain. And if I focus on the pain, I can relate it to the suffering of Christ who died on the cross. Hallelujah, I'm holy. No, you're not. You're stupid. You say, but it, it, it makes sense, doesn't it? Labor for the food that perishes makes sense. Even if it's a spiritual thing, it's still worldly. We're not of this world. And so we worship according to the Word, not the world, not the, the culture. We worship in spirit and in truth. That in all of the apologetic debates of the world, not one person has God ever used those things. He's never used any of those debates to cause a man to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Let me not be so dogmatic. In all of my thousands of cohorts and associates, in all of my academic circles, I've never met one who's given a prudent testimony of the gospel of grace who has come to understand spiritual things through the debates of apologetic means. What is a true apologetic? 
exposition of the Word of God and whatever language it needs to be in. And there are some men, women, who are gifted, gifted, gifted in the original languages who help keep us on our toes to make sure we're not missing something. But even then, it's about the Word of God, isn't it? It's about the local church. Not the apologists. Not seminaries. Those aren't even biblical, y'all. They're not. There's no prescription. There's no promise. The promise is heady arrogance. Myopic blindness. Missing the gospel. Missing ecclesiology. Pastors will be far better taught by elderly women who have raised a lot of children and grandchildren who have served the Lord Jesus through means of physical, tangible, practical ministry than they'll ever get from a professor of theology. Learning to love people is what it's all about. According to the Bible, not according to the culture. See, the world will not do this. The world will not worship the Lord according to the Scripture. The world in all of its iterations will worship other things, other gods, other Christs, other Gospels. And we know who they are by what is allowed to stand concerning the truth of Christ. Allowed to stand and then also by how they handle it when things aren't the way they should be. When correction is refused, and church discipline in either pillar is denied amongst the people, that is not a church. It's not a church. It's a social agency. The church, and you can look at all of Paul's letters and see this, but the church is a buttress of the truth because it is the purpose of creation. To the glory of God, the praise of the glory of His grace, the church exists by Christ who created all things through Himself, and by Himself, and most importantly, for Himself. And I know I, I refer to this often through the years, but I'm just amazed at the Philosophy of considering the fact that Jesus created Mary and her womb and the body for himself. Create your own body. So that you could come into the world to save a people for yourself who will be recipients of your created purpose. To the praise of your glory. The church upholds the truth and buttresses the truth and displays the truth and defends the truth, etc. In the context of the particulars of grace. Because we know that the gospel is about grace. It's all of grace. It's all of grace. The church stands on the foundations of the scripture in whole. Not in part. Not in peace. It's like a brother and I were talking two nights ago. And he was... We, we always uh, you know, groan about... The fact that chapters and verses and headings above these things has really messed up how we read the Bible. But he said, aren't you glad I don't have to say, you know, fifth paragraph, line three, word six of Isaiah. Oh, no, I meant, no, wait a minute. Start counting again. One, two, 63rd line. Yeah, thank you. No, not there. No, not there. No, not there. Not. There it is. So I'm glad we've got roadmaps. But those roadmaps, those chapter, verse, Distinctions are for our movement. 
not for our memory. We don't take them out. It is written as a whole. If you do not know John's gospel, you do not know what John 3 is talking about. If you do not know Paul's letters to Timothy, you do not know what 2 Timothy 3, 15, 16, 17 is talking about. You do not know what it means when it says women ought to learn quietly. You see... church upholds the particulars of grace. Not theological pieces of grace, not revelations of grace, not philosophies of grace, not the way we think about grace, but what the scripture says in its context and its language concerning the grace of God. We reveal and rest in the teaching of the Bible. And we do so through the teaching of the elders for our upbuilding and growth. Ephesians chapter 4. God gave gifts to the church. To the church. To the church. For, for what? For building, for growing, for intimacy, for love, that it may grow and build itself up in love. So when we learn about the preeminence of Christ, which I'll talk about in a minute, we, we do so for the sake of our love for one another. So that when someone does say, James, you hurt my feelings. For the sake of Christ, would you listen to what you've done? Yes, I will. Because He's preeminent, right? If anybody invokes for the sake of Christ... For the name of Christ, for the glory of Christ, you at least need to listen to whether they're right or wrong. And if they're right, correct. If they're wrong, inquire patiently, lovingly. You see, it's a simple process. But it's outside the nature of our fleshliness. We uphold the particulars of grace through true biblical teaching, through the true biblical message of the good report, which is what we call gospel. Gospel. And this good report is a message of mercy. It's a message of grace. And the Bible is clear and grammatically and syntactically, it is very purposefully exclusive on the use of the term possessive to God. Every time we see the word grace, possessive to God, its audience is always the elect. In no other way, no other sense, do we ever see that term used in any language or any iteration when it's possessive to God except to the elect. So that we see a special reality when it comes to God's grace being the salvation of His people through Jesus Christ His Son. The church holds fast with patience to this doctrine, with love, and we hold to the Scripture in whole as we are instructed on His teaching concerning Christ and how we handle everything, including the context of this writing, which is theological error. Gross theological error. The church upholds the truth, a buttress and pillar of the truth as the household of God. We uphold the preeminence of Christ. See, when we deny theological truths taught to us concerning Christ, we deny Christ. When we deny the instruction given by Christ through the apostles to the church, we deny Christ. If Christ were among us in the flesh today and He's handed out pamphlets and we say, I don't want that stupid pamphlet, we deny Christ. You see what I'm saying? When He comes up and says, hey, can I pray for you? Say, get away from me. I don't want your prayers. We deny Christ. If He rings the doorbell and we hide behind the sofa, no one's home, we deny Christ. But if Christ is preeminent, how can we deny that which we stand to say is preeminent? 
That means he's above all things, before all things, beyond all things, the first of all things. He's the first of all things. Where do I get that stuff? All the firsts. John 1, Hebrews 1, all this stuff. And, and I'll tell you, beloved, when we start to think about this, we really start to test whether or not our understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture is really a, faith, a belief of ours. Because when it comes to Christ's preeminence, it's the bedrock of His sovereignty. And then, His sovereignty is the power of our union with Him. And those are the last three things I'm going to talk about. We uphold this. Jesus Christ, according to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Now, I've got to back up. Verse 9, so, from the day we first heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, church of Colossae, asking that you may be filled, get this, hear this for a second, with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. What it is that God is asking and telling and teaching. In order that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord which is fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, which requires the gospel truth, doctrinally, and also gospel obedience, practically. Increasing in the knowledge also of God as you minister in truth. Therefore, thereby being strengthened with all power, according to the glo- His glorious power and might, for all endurance, being able to handle it all and stand under it, and all patience, With joy, here's a kicker, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. See that gospel? See that sovereignty? See that preeminence? You see that union? We are not qualified in and of ourselves. We are qualified because of Christ. He is the preeminent one. Qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints, in light, in righteousness, in Christ. Christ is the light of the world. He, Christ, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. We don't belong here. We are no longer citizens here. In whom we have redemption, which is the forgiveness of sins. He, this Christ of which I speak, Paul says, is the visible image, the manifestation, the physical, tangible, tabernacle reality of the invisible, eternal, immortal, powerful God. In all ways, He is the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether they be visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body. You see, this is where Paul goes. Here's the, the, the stressful thing as a pastor. We all love deep theological things that get our tickles on. That's nice. Jesus is nice. I love Jesus. Not if you're not loving His people and your enemies. You love the idea of Jesus being an all-powerful, merciful Lamb that gave Himself on the cross. But if we're not practically living out the faith because of Christ 
as a preeminent sovereign Savior, then we are lying to ourselves to think that we care. Remember what I said in the beginning. I'm not talking about your eternal salvation. I'm talking about your life right now. Because many in knuckleheaded seasons of our lives do we act stupid and pretend like we don't remember what Jesus tells us we ought to be doing, but we sure do love His sovereignty. No, come on. It's like driving in San Francisco for the first few weeks. And you stop at a stop sign and you're going... Is there a road over there? Like in the peak of a... I'm not kidding. You can't see the road before you. You just sort of go through the stop sign and... Ah! Like a roller coaster. It's unnerving. People honking at you, cussing at you, screaming. Go! 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 With your Virginia tags. Go! It's scary. There was a road there. How do I know? I trust the sovereignty of the city of San Francisco to make sure there's a road there. I can trust the sovereignty of Christ and His preeminency. It's not easy. Oh my goodness, we're going to fail every day. But that's why He's preeminent. That's why we are attached to Him. So doing life together. He is the head of the body, of His body, which is the assembly, the gathered ones. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be first and foremost preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through Him to reconcile all things in him, to Himself, whether on earth or in heaven, how? Making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ is preeminent. Doing life together like this, Bible teaches us, reveals the preeminence of Christ and His power in us, the redemption of a particular people who are bound together by the truth of Christ and the gospel and who live together in Christ as revealed in the Bible according to the commands of Christ that we find in the Bible. And this is the bedrock of what I believe that we also show when we stand and uphold patience in His sovereignty. Because I believe if we truly rest in sovereignty, and the preeminence and the sovereignty of Christ, we are going to be patient. Because with patient comes one, big, the big C word, contentment. We hate that word. Because with contentment, we can't fuss, complain, bicker, growl, snap, moan, groan. <laughs> you see, let me moan and groan about that. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. I'm frustrated. I give up. Good. Let's give up. When we understand sovereignty, we understand patience. When we understand patience, we understand contentment. And we're able to praise God in all things. And we're able to do all these things that are prescribed here because we have been made one with Christ. We're not allowed to get flustered and take matters into our own hands. I'm going to fix this. What does the Bible say? How does the Bible say we're to relate to someone who offends us? How does the Bible say forgiveness is supposed to be given? If the person meets conditions? No. Before they ever ask. They're free. What's the Bible say about what it means to love one another in Christ? What's the Bible say according to loving our enemies? What's the Bible say about praying for those 
who persecute us. Oh. See, that's the discipline that God works on me hardest. Because I can pray for everybody. But the people who make you mad, it's hard to pray. So you do it anyway. Why? Because God is sovereign and He's patient. And ultimately, into the end of all things, we are buttressing the truth by displaying the power of our union with Christ. And this is, a, this is like two hours I could talk about this right here, but I just want to get it all out there. Because it all lands for next week talking about true biblical church membership. And what it's supposed to, how we're supposed to understand it. I'm not up here teaching so you can check marks off your theological distinction library. I'm up here teaching so that we can grow together and understand it. The power of union with Jesus Christ. We're mocked because of this. You know that, right? We're not really mocked in echo chambers and circles of interest, self-interest and, and like interest when we're standing dogmatically with our whip in our hands, our torch and our hay forks. But we're mocked at our non-action. We're mocked at the resolve of resting. We're mocked at our silence. But we are one with Christ. Thus, we are to imitate Christ, not the world. Peter would say that he who, what? Christ said not a word in his defense. The most boring superhero movie ever displayed. There was no vengeance. No great acts of strength. No wars. No shootouts. No camel chases. No rock throwings. Jesus didn't stop rocks. You can't stone me. Throw them away. Like the Matrix. You know. It's boring. They hit him in the head with it. He didn't come here to be a superhero. He came here to be the epitome of a sinless human being who would take on the guilt of the sin of his people. And so, in like manner, we are to do as Christ did in that. Not in his sovereignty, not in his preeminence, but in his preeminence as the firstborn. The first true image of God holder. The first real and only ever Imagio Dei. For those of you who understand that. Image of God. Jesus Christ. The world loves a hero with a great standing. The, lo the, lo the world loves a hero with a big mouth. And depending on what season it is, with the right clothes, with the right influence. You know what influencers are? Kindling. Let me say that again. Influencers in our world are just kindling for the fire of rage and wrath. If you want to influence, influence one peaceably. Who cares? Who cares? And, and beloved, it's hard. It's easy to try to, oh, well, the church needs to get in there and be like them. We need to have the same influence as them. We've got the greatest influence of all. In our calmness, our patience, in the sovereignty of God, in the preeminence of Christ, and in our union with Him. We have the greatest influence of all. And the awesome thing is, is that when people are influenced by our message and by our mission, then it is because God has drawn them to Himself through the message. There's three M's. 
And now we are able to walk in a manner worthy together, celebrating Christ that along the way, where do these people come from? God has brought them to us. We are one body. The world loves a hero with intelligent arguments. Who can shut down the naysayer. Who can get on television or social media or some video or some podcast and just with a slash of his tongue silence the stupidity of another person's ignorance. And you can, you can train yourself. You can train yourself for that, guys. It's simple. It's, you know, oh, it's, intelli- it's not intelligence. It's cunningness. Paul would say, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, we refuse to tamper with God's Word or to practice cunningness, but by the direct, bold statement of the truth by itself alone in simplicity and stupidity, we stand before God and our conscience and yours and everybody else knowing that what we've done is right, paraphrase. And if people don't want to hear what we have to say, and what we have to say is not influencing the nation, and the en masse, people don't go, I'm not going to hear more about this Jesus. It's not because we're not doing it or approaching it correctly. It's because the God of this world has blinded the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the glory of God in the face of Christ. No matter how you parse that reality there in that phrase, and Who the God of the world is. The God of the world is God Almighty Himself. Jesus Christ the Lord. And so if He uses the devil for His purposes, it is only by His sovereign design and decree. So God blinds the eyes of unbelievers to keep them from seeing. But God who has shown light out of darkness, who said, let there be light, has shown light in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. And this is not of our own doing, you see. It is so that God may be glorified in it. The world loves a hero who can rile up the masses and call for conformity. But Jesus Christ did not model this. He modeled patience. Submission to the Father. He modeled a solidarity around one mission. And that was to give glory to God the Father at all costs. To make Himself nothing. To become nothing. To become a slave. To go to the cross. He came. He created the world that He might exist in it. In order that He might die for those who were not of the world. That He would save from it. And beloved, that's what evangelism really is. First and foremost, of being a people by design, by decree, and by power to know the truth of the gospel and to work it out and to correct it and to deal with it when it's not right. To come to a place where we sit on the same page doctrinally. So that we are able in the midst of that journey to walk in a manner worthy, loving one another. And the world looks at us and goes, y'all are about the useless, most useless bunch of people I've ever seen. And that doesn't feel good, does it? What are y'all doing for y'all's community? Um, We baptized 953 puppies last week. All dogs go to heaven. How many diapers did you buy? You know, I paid it for yesterday, $403. you believe that? Look, oh, I'll show you the selfie I put on Facebook. Me and the poor family. 
Now, they had the money to pay for their food. You just wanted to pay for it. Nothing wrong with doing these things. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. When we share our ministry, we spit in the face of Jesus. I'm not talking about anybody. <laughs> I've been seeing them my whole life. Open air preaching shouldn't have a video. What are you doing for your community? My community, first and foremost, is my fellow saints who are in covenant relationship. That means we have a promise, just like we have in our marriages, to be together with them. Here's the kicker. Marriage covenant goes bye-bye. For it is like the temple pieces. It's just a shadow of the truth. So Robin and I, we better be brother and sister first and foremost in a spiritual sense so that our marriage makes sense eternally. So when we share the gospel, we do so in life, we do so in truth, and we do so intentionally. And I will be preaching some evangelism series in fall, Lord willing. And I'm alive. So what does this all boil down to? It all boils down to the reality that I say every week, read your Bible, know and understand what the text is teaching, and then live in a covenant community with people who are different, but who are learning the truth together. And be patient with the Lord. There's nothing more ridiculous than to say, oh, God called me here and boast about that only for months later to say, I was wrong. That's foolish. That's foolish. And it shows God had no part of it. Except in His purposes that they were not of us. And as bad as that hurts, and as frustrating as that is, that is the way of the Lord. But who are we? Who is together this morning? Who, had we had the elements, would be sharing in the tastes of remembering the table? We who have shared in the true blood of Christ. We who have shared in the true union in power with Jesus Christ. We who were crucified when He died and thus satisfied before the Father. And we who were raised to life in Him when He rose from the grave with the promise of glory forever. That is our hope. That is our resolve. And beloved, I promise you, it will be fleeting and it will be short and it will be seasonal. But when God gives us the reprieve to rest in those small minutes or hours or days, the next time around, focus on that moment when God did show Himself worthy and wait. Because He'll show you again. He'll show you again, even if it is like our brother Robert, who is with our Savior today. Simplicity of the gospel power of Christ to save. Oh, what a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful love our God has for us as people. Let's love each other that way. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the greatest gift ever known. And that is the gift of Jesus Christ. To die in the place of your people. You have given us faith to know that we are yours. You have given us faith to know 
what you have promised. You've given us faith to, to know that we can be patient. We can be forgiven when we're wrong. We can be corrected. And we can grow together with each other. Lord, help us to never lose sight of these things. Help us to never lose sight of what it really means to be the body. Even though the world around us just overwhelms us with all these different pictures of what we ought to be. It's very easy for us to get distracted, Father. So please help us to stay focused gently, patiently, and calmly. Knowing that even when things seem like they're falling apart, nothing has gone. Nothing has gone where you haven't ordained it to be. So give us that resolve. And Lord, as we worship and as we pray and as we hear your word, as we learn and understand, we pray for our brothers and sisters who are so suffering in their flesh and other things. Lord, we pray for those who are who are scared to even tell us what they're going through. Lord, please heal us all that your will may be done for us to have unity and togetherness and ministry and service and worship. And Lord, we thank you for contending with us in patience until the day of Christ, who you have promised it to us in glory. In his name we pray.